0: The conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Big Island's biomass plant, Honua Ola, is regrouping after the Public Utilities Commission denied its power purchase agreement with Hawaii Electric Light Company this week. PUC Chair Jay Griffin cast one of the two majority votes against the agreement. For Griffin, this vote has been a long time in coming. The specific docket came before the PUC in May of 2017. The same month he was first appointed to the commission, and now he's just a month left in his tenure as chair. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Griffin about the controversial project that spanned over the last five years.
1: Actually, I would take you back even further because I started on the commission as a staff member in 2012 and was there for the first approval And that project then encountered problems and the, the uh, contract was terminated. So this saga has straddled most of my time at the commission. I think it tells you how Challenging, controversial. This work can be uh, the decisions we have to make affect everyone, no matter how we turn out, uh, how we kind of weigh on it. And you know, those are the kinds of interests that we have to balance. But that's our job at the end of the day.
2: And can you just reiterate for listeners? I know it is in the briefing, but that is a thick document. <laughs> what the deciding factors were in the PUC's decision, at least for the two commissioners, to deny this agreement?
1: Sure. The the majority decision. You know, as we looked at the evidence presented to us, we still had concerns about the environmental impacts of the project. As proposed, the plant would burn wood, which will emit greenhouse gas emissions, and that'll be offset by how they plant trees into the future. And it was still unclear, still yet unclear, of you know, what that looks like and over the, the net balance of emissions over the term. That coupled with the high cost of the the contract itself over 30 years. I think it was kind of, those are the, the key factors that the commission looked at, as well as why Electric Light had said uh, during the hearing and during the various briefing that uh, they don't see a, ne- a key reliability need for the project in the near term. That's usually a, a, key, a important factor if you're going to justify a higher cost project. So when we looked at all those together, those are the, some of the key deciding factors. We've denied without prejudice what that means and effect is that if the if the proponents here decide to come back to the Commission in a different way would relook really at the details of the contract in that context. And the important one there is we're about to reopen a third round of competitive bidding for renewable projects on Hawaii Island. So there could be an opportunity there.
2: Hmm. Honua Ola President Warren Lee has stated that the company intends to file a motion reconsideration. They have about a week left to do so. Procedurally, what could follow the filing of that motion?
1: We'll have to look at what it states. There's a legal standard for how the commission will take up one of those motions and eventually, if we decide to reconsider aspects of the decision that we made.
2: Attorney Naomi Kawai will take your spot on the commission come July. She was appointed by the governor and then confirmed by the Senate. During her confirmation, Senator Joy San Buenaventura raised concerns about Kauai's past work for Honua Ola. She prepared a due diligence memo for the company in 2019. After July 1st, will Honua Ola's motion for reconsideration fall under Kauai's purview?
1: Too too much to speculate about there for me to give an answer both on whether they're gonna file a motion, what it would contain, our ability to rule on it, certain timelines, and then what her role may or may not be in that.
2: Honua Ola seeks to create energy from biomass, which is a firm renewable, which is what's called a firm renewable. Senate Bill 2510, now on its way to the governor for his signature, would set a minimum requirement for the amount of firm renewables that make up each island's renewable energy portfolio. What would this mean for the PUC and the projects that come before the commission?
1: Yeah, so my read of the bill that passed uh, the conference draft most of the language, or the languages in the state planning, is uh, office planning, state planning section, as you noted, there are specific requir- percentage requirements both for firm renewable, renewable energy types, um, and limits on uh, any individual source of so-called intermittent renewables. I believe it was forty-five percent. I think people's reading of what is there states that uh, various different state agencies would have to be in compliance with. Those limits, and I believe we had to appeal. We would have to appeal to the governor um, and the Office of Planning if our decisions were at at odds with what was there. So I think that's where there's a lot of um, uncertainty about how this would be interpreted. The industry, broader than just the industry, various stakeholders have uh, spoken pretty loud and clear on their concerns uh, about the language and the uncertainty that it's creating. People are literally waiting holding back on signing off on different contracts to wait and see how the dust settles here. I mean, that's my read of what is there. And right now it is, the state energy office has been kind of the lead energy policy agency in reviewing this. And there'll be a a bill review and the governor will take up his decision um, in what he wants to do with the bill that passed.
2: So as written, this reads as a mandate.
1: I think the clear clear reading of the bill says uh, we have to go seek approval if we, um, we meaning any of the state's kind of energy related, well, if we make any decisions that are at odds with the language that's in there, and the, I believe the percentage requirements were, there were different studies and means that those could be amended over time. So I think that was what was offered as a way of having flexibility. Um, I mean, the the bill reads as it reads. (laughs) I don't know what else to say.
2: Are there projects that have come before the PUC or other aspects of firm renewables that could be helpful to the state in the future?
1: Well, I think the answer is absolutely. We've approved what we call a flexible generating unit here on this island at Schofield Barracks. These are basically large diesel engines that can turn on and off quickly, can um, increase output and decrease output in, along with uh, the variability of renewables, and that project is entirely fueled by biofuels now. Those kinds of different generators, there's a important need for um, what you call that kind of dispatchability when other other types of energy are not there. These are when you look at the long term. Uh, studies of how to operate a high renewable system 100 percent system it looks like there's a need for these kinds of generator generating units to uh, be there available turn on used infrequently but uh, they're there and they they'll, they'll be required to have some sort of low carbon fuel renewable fuel so whether it's biofuels you look at the studies on the mainland they're looking at in the long term looking at so-called green hydrogen So this is hydrogen that could be used to run a combustion turbine or one of these uh, dispatchable generators. So we're doing it today. Uh, Hawaiian Electric has filed for expanding our RFPs on at least two, actually three islands, on Hawaii Island, Maui, and Oahu uh, with a component for firm generation, dispatchable generation. And and so I think when you look at this island in particular, where we have 50-plus, 70-year-old uh, oil fire generators. We there is a long-term question here: is how are we going to transition off of those? What what are the replacement generation that comes in the the near term and the long term? So, short of it is yeah. There's a, what I see is a definite need. The challenges we haven't seen any of these projects that are really inexpensive yet. You got to look at the the various different attributes that they offer. The project on uh, Schofield Barracks, you know, is also uh, located away from tsunami zones. Uh, it'll be there to power the air base in case of emergency. So lots of different attributes of that project. We've, we did approve the geothermal project on the Big Island and expansion. I think you know one of the questions here people are gonna look at are the, the, the definitions of these resources are, are blurring when you look at what is happening with combinations of so-called intermittent renewables, solar, wind, paired with different types of energy storage. If you look at the project that the commission and KIEC uh, proposed, their most recent pump storage hydro project. So one of the most innovative applications of uh, pump storage technology and old proven technology, batteries, solar, hydroelectric power. Uh, so they they complement each other well and can offer kind of this new generation of flexible, dispatchable, clean, and cost effective. You know, those projects were all you know, better than the price of oil, and very competitive with other sources as well.
2: Mm. And to clarify for our listeners, when we're talking about firm renewables, we're talking about uh, something we can derive energy from twenty-four hours a day. Whereas intermittent renewables, wind, solar, those are more variant in what they can provide, right?
1: So that's a that's that's the way the definitions are laid out in law. I think this is where the ind- this is where technology is making these lines blur because um, you can now. You take an intermittent source. The sun's only there during the middle of the day. But if you can put it in some place to store that energy, whether it's a battery, whether it's pump it up a hill for a pumped hydro storage plant, um, now it's available to the utility as they need it. So there's limitations on that, um, but what we're seeing at kind of today's technology and need, it's extremely uh, versatile and you know treated at least the island of Kwai is treating those plants kind of on a one, to, one for one substitutable basis for a traditional generator. Mm. Uh, so I think that's where the challenge is here that technology is, is improving rapidly and so these old distinctions, these old definitions are uh, probably going to impede that progress rather than um, move us forward.
2: Mm. Something else in that bill is an expectation that the state transition fully off fossil fuels by 2045. How do you think we're doing <laughs> in regards to that goal?
1: Well, if you look at the numbers of the goals that are set in law now, we've been ahead of goals to date. The projects that we've had in the pipeline would have put us on you know a good path towards the next goal in 2030. Uh, the reality is we're hitting a number of different headwinds with those projects at the moment. We've had two rounds of competitive bidding and a, a number of other different programs. Uh, the supply chain holdups and you know, just overall di- levels of inflation are certainly a challenge at the moment. Uh, but that's gonna, I mean, if we look at the long-term, those will clear up at some point, whether mm-hmm. it's 12 months or longer. Um, and I think you know we're still on, we're still poised for making these near-term goals. If you look at the island of Kauai, with their last edition of a solar and storage project, they're reaching over 70% renewable energy. And probably the most impressive thing is that they're one of the first places in the world, at least a kind of populated energy, or a large, scale, larger scale energy system where they operate several hours a day, four plus hours a day, 100% renewable energy. So they've been, you know, continue to lead each of our other islands are not that far behind at the moment when you look at the progression of the next set of projects. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. That said, I mean, uh, one of my lessons after five plus you know plus, five years on the commission is that this is all extremely hard. Don't believe anyone that kind of tries to sound, uh, tries to make that this work is easy. Every single one of these projects faces challenges in their normal times. And, you know, we're facing extraordinary challenges, but so everyone else involved in this business in the world is going through the same thing at the moment. Despite the controversy with some projects, there's a lot of uh, recent news that would suggest that I mean, we're learning on that front as well. So the these are small island communities. We're taking on a big challenge and it, it is going to take, you know, everyone working together the best we can to uh, just bring individual projects online, but certainly to do it at the scale that we're talking about, at the pace that we're talking about.
0: That was Public Utilities Commission Chair Jay Griffin. He spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Poet about the PUC's ruling against Honua Ola's power purchase agreement and the role of firm renewables in our energy future. Tuned to the conversation on member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Moloka, O Lana, O For today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of one of the oldest existing buildings in downtown Honolulu, which also happens to be the oldest Catholic church in continuous use in the United States. was completed and dedicated in 1843. The white coral blocks used in its construction came from the same reef as the blocks used for Kaua'ihau Church. In 1864, Catholic faithful gathered here for the ordination of then Father Damien. In 2014, the building's name was slightly altered to include the title of Minor Basilica, which distinguished it for ceremonial purposes. Today, it continues to be the Mother Church of the Diocese of Honolulu and houses the cathedral or bishop's seat. For today's quiz, can you tell us which cathedral we're talking about? We'll proclaim the answer from the humble HPR Cathedral later in the show. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells you you got it right.
3: Support for the backyard quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. Nairithawaii.com
0: National Mental Health Month, and we're all struggling to understand yesterday's mass shooting at an elementary school in Texas where twenty one people died. Two were teachers, and the nineteen children were said to be from one class. We reflect on the influences in our daily lives that could affect our well being. A uh, news report this morning indicates that the eighteen year old gunman shared his plans in a private post on Facebook. And for the long view today, contributing editor Neil Bilner joins us live in the studio. Good morning, Neil. Morning, Catherine. Yeah, I think it's sombering headlines It sure today. is.
4: And coincidentally, I had planned on talking about the uh, effect that Facebook has on the mental health of college students. And this is a new study that in a very clever way adds substance to the fact that other studies have shown that Facebook very much influences in a bad way the mental health of college students. And the argument here is that it causes the bad health of college students, particularly in regard to depression and uh, particularly in regard to leading to poorer grades. Now, we've heard a lot of this kind of stuff, and as I said, some kind of research has been around. This was a very different kind of research that really does add stuff. First of all, it's on the um it's on the years two thousand three to two thousand six, and that may sound like a limit in the study, and I'll get back to it in a second why it isn't. The reason that they chose those years and what makes the study strong and interesting is that those are the early years of Facebook really in terms of the college students. And what Facebook did was to roll out access to colleges selectively over time, gradually over time. They had business reasons to do it, they had capacity reasons to do it, but it set up what these authors of this study, this research show, is a natural experiment because they can look at different effects at different times and so that's why they're more confident about saying that it causes um, these kind of effects. And so it it's fairly clear in this study that they depression increases with access to Facebook among college students, and the way they measure that is that there is a standard measure that colleges use, colleges all over the country, that thousands of students take voluntarily in their classroom. It's kind of a survey of mental status, and and, uh, I'm sure that some of you have college Students may have filled it out at the time, and it has all kinds of standard measures of of depression. And that's what they used to show that this had had really changed. So their argument about why it's an important study and that those three years aren't, aren't, uh, the fact that it goes back a few years, aren't limited. Well, one is because of what they could do with the data, but the other one is they said, er excuse me, everything that Facebook has done since then is likely to reinforce these kinds of studies and that social media has done since then and there has been other kind of research so that's where this particular study uh, falls facebook is again indicted if you want to use that expression on having these kind of negative effects
0: and so you know we're talking college age kids 18 to 21 i mean and that's you know an impressionable age uh but it's also a time when uh, when mental health illness can manifest itself.
4: Well, that's right, but we have to be really careful here. That's a common time for early onset of or common onset of schizophrenia, for example. This is not about schizophrenia. This is I mean, I, it, it may show up somewhat in here. But you're right. This is an age in which students have become, in a sense, at least according to data, increasingly vulnerable to, uh, to mental problems. It's part of a broader issue that we'll get back to. The reason that Facebook seems to have this effect and what makes it impressionable is that people who talk about becoming more depressed as a result seem to do so because they negatively compare themselves to the status of others. Well, you know what that's mm-hmm. about. I just said it in kind of social science language, but, you know, it's, to me, the Christmas letter effect. Right. You read someone doing so well and you say, why isn't that me? I'm not as good as they are. You know, we know that about kids who are younger. uh, But it clearly was was a factor here.
0: Yeah. We're talking about the insecurities, right? Yeah.
4: The insecure. Well, I mean, you know, those are common insecurities. Uh, They're not just to young adults, but it seemed to have a, a, a pretty powerful effect. And this is Facebook's own data. This is, well, that's another thing. Okay, so let's get into that. Facebook's own data, which came from uh, the Wall Street Journal, I believe, reported on this first, came from a study of the impact on Instagram and some of the other Facebook-related stuff that seemed to show a negative impact on student mental health. The reaction to Facebook, according to some other writers, uh, good piece in Verge magazine, um, was that, you know what, our data isn't really very good. Um, And you know what, it was more for marketing thing than kind of diagnosis. And as this article pointed out, it says, well, it's your data, and you're starting to sound like tobacco companies in regard to smoking. The, uh, and uh, this Facebook, of course, denies that an analogy, but it's not that Facebook is very forthcoming on, on, and they've been very resistant on this kind of information. But there certainly are things that are happening that indict the um, social media more. And you have to remember that thrown into this now is, of course, the pandemic, which it's pretty clear has had some significant effects on the mental health of young people uh, and that the, the rates of um, uh, thinking about depression, thinking about suicide has gone up, the suicide rates are going up. That's all part of this bigger picture. But if you just want to focus on something that shows that Facebook uh, has negative effects, it doesn't mean it doesn't have any positive effects. I'm not, I'm not saying that. This is a place to look.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm thinking of the gunman in that Texas case. You know, he, he posted, you know, sure. was that a cry for help? It was a private post, but people who knew him, you know, could they have stopped him? I don't know. Well,
4: that could be. The cry for help is a little, you know, to me might seem a little bit disingenuous because he posted 30 minutes before to a person that I, w- I just was doing some reading on it who essentially didn't know who this guy was. So, um, the, you know, the, there certainly is an issue about not spotting people, uh, but a lot of these people are hard to spot. This guy um, in in uh, Uvalde didn't have a criminal record, and and there's just a lot of cases that we live in a world in which we can't always see these kinds of things happening. There are certainly other situations where uh, the the uh, Shooter in Buffalo was clearly advertising this a longer period of time. And we haven't gotten very good in recognizing this. But you have to remember that um, a person in authority in a school cannot simply take a weapon away. That's the job for the police and so on. And the Second Amendment still has an overall protection on this.
0: Yeah, not to talk about, about uh, gun laws, but we have to talk about mental health. Uh, and just be more cognizant, I guess, of just of of uh, what's social media, what 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 is out there in our everyday lives that could impact our health. Well,
4: and to pay special attention to the significant increase in mental health problems that shows up over and over again, and the uh, problems and the lack of capacity that we have to treat it, uh, that there, that's become harder and harder. And in fact, the recent strike by the Kaiser mental health professionals, at least the unionized ones, was really about that issue that they felt they were being overworked and that they weren't staffed enough.
0: Yeah. So whether it's uh, Facebook or Instagram, uh, the social media,
4: TikTok. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's yeah, you, there, for sure, the the evidence is building up about the negative impact of of. Uh, of facebook on these kinds of issues but facebook can't be blamed for everything that's involved with in the in the uh declining mental health of lots of people
0: yeah but we have to be definitely aware of uh all the things out there could uh, that could affect our mental health but thank you neil you're welcome take care we have been talking with our contributing editor neil milner he joins us for our bi-weekly bi-weekly we call the long View.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pacific American Lumber on Oahu, with neolith-sintered stone, a heat, stain, and scratch-resistant surface for indoor and outdoor countertops, flooring, and walls. PACAMlumber.com.
5: HPR and StoryCorps will be in Hilo this June to preserve stories about the military for future generations. From stories of service to stories of injustice, we welcome all perspectives. If you live in Hilo and know someone who'd like to share their story, we invite you to sign up for a recording session. Our Oahu dates are fully booked, so join our wait list. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash storycore.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including Arts of Hawaii and Textiles, honolulumuseum.org.
0: Diabetes. Does it run in your family? Well, that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Anita Hopschneider joins us today. Good morning, Anita.
6: Good morning, Captain. Thanks for having
0: me. Yeah, so your story looks at uh, diabetes, but particularly in the Native Hawaiian group. Yes, you know, as, as
6: we all know, and this has been known for quite some time, is that Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders have high rates of diabetes in Hawaii, And unfortunately for some people, that leads to eventually relying on something called dialysis, which is a blood filtering treatment that essentially performs the same functions as your kidneys when your kidneys stop working properly. And, you know, the point of my article today was to talk about the way in which dialysis centers in Hawaii are actually proliferating. You know, a couple decades ago, there weren't that many. You may not have really seen dialysis centers as you're driving around, but now Especially listeners who are in your cars, you know, you might be seeing dialysis centers on your commute, and part of that is because there are more people in Hawaii who have kidney failure than there used to be, and companies are coming in and trying to meet that need.
0: Yeah, so talk about the numbers. Where are we at?
6: Um, well, you know, I would talk to one company called U.S. Renal Care, and they. Um, between 2013 and 2023, they're actually doubling in the process of doubling the number of dialysis clinics that they have statewide. Um, They're opening up a clinic this summer in Kalihi. They just got approval from the state to open up um, one in Kapa'a in Kauai. And they are also looking to open up uh, one in Kahului. Um, They have plans further down the line in 2023 to open up clinics in Hilo and Kona. And so, you know, part of this is being met by um, some joy and relief from families. You know, a lot of patients they end up traveling, um, you know, long drives in traffic or on the handy van or on buses to and from dialysis for care, and it can be quite taxing. And so, having more options in their communities is really being met by um, some, uh, with a lot of, you know, with a lot of joy and a lot of uh, gratitude. But at the same time, you know, when I talk to um, health practitioners and, and people who follow this disease, you know, they are saying, you know, dialysis centers can't be the answer. Having more dialysis centers is actually a sign of, you know, how sick our community is, and the fact that, you know, diabetes and kidney failure are, are still worsening despite efforts, uh, you know, to address them.
0: Well, and you know, uh, people may not realize that when you go to a dialysis appointment, I mean, you're often there for, you know, a couple hours. Uh, so it does take out, you know, a large uh, chunk of your day. I, I, I know a, a small business owner uh, I came in contact with recently said, well, you know, it, you, uh, I have to close it too because I've got to go to my dialysis appointment. And, uh, yeah, so it, it people don't realize it. it is a real strain on families.
6: It really is. And, you know, actually at Civil Beat we're going to be doing a few stories on this topic. And so if anybody who is listening has family um, or our patients themselves who go to and from dialysis and want to talk about their situation, you know, please feel free to reach out to me at Civil Beat and, um, you know, share your story because that's part of what we want to do is, is sort of talk about the lengths in which patients in Hawaii go um, to access care that in um, other places might be easier to get.
0: Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned that they're opening up, you know, more of these uh, dialysis centers on the neighbor islands because otherwise without access folks have to come here to Honolulu.
6: That's right you know in the public testimony for the new center in Kapa'a um, there was a, a testimonial from somebody saying that their dad actually had to be on Oahu and live on Oahu for six months getting dialysis while he was waiting for a spot to open up at one of the two centers in Kauai. so it, it does really take a toll on families a mental emotional toll and then there's a the financial cost to taxpayers as well, you know, with uh, Medicare reimbursing uh, the cost of dialysis. And so, you know, what everyone agrees is that prevention of these diseases so that it doesn't get to the point where kidneys are failing is the real answer. And so, um, you know, we do hope to explore that further as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, because when you're talking access, it's not just uh, the neighbor islands, you know, in Hawaii, but it's also in the territories as well.
6: Yes, this is definitely not just a Hawaii issue. You know, when we look at the high rates of disease among Pacific Islanders and you look at issues of access. one doctor I talked to was talking about his experience in American Samoa and Catherine know being from Guam and me from the CNMI, it really is a regional issue in terms of access to care.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know the fact that if it does run in families, uh, the toll is you know tripled quadrupled, uh, you know if you can't get the uh, if you don't take, te- take steps to uh, prevent from getting it in the first place. Yes, definitely. But we'll look forward to uh, your other stories. But thank you so much, Anita. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. You can read her stories on this issue. Visit civilbeat.org. This week, uh, we've got another bird name for their brilliant color, the saffron finch. But their songs are just as lovely as their plumage. Special thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for sharing their calls. Professor Patrick Hart with the University of Hawaii Hilo Campus is here with your Manu Minute.
7: The saffron finch is a golden yellow songbird that can be commonly seen in small flocks on lawns and other grassy and shrubby areas on Hawaii Island and Oahu. Native to South America, they were introduced to Hawaii in the early 1960s, mainly because of their colorful plumage and their pleasant whistle-like songs. Both sexes are bright yellow, but males have a much more orangey head and face, while juveniles are much lighter yellow. They mostly forage on the ground for seeds and insects, and are also happy to visit backyard bird feeders. These birds were introduced at a time when many of our native birds had disappeared from the lowlands due to mosquito-transmitted disease like avian malaria. If and when we ever succeed at landscape-scale control of these non-native mosquitoes, it's possible that many of our native birds like the bright red apapane and the yellow Amakihi can recolonize our parks and backyards. It remains to be seen how they might interact with some of the newly established species like the saffron finch. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo.
3: Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Debra, providing tile, mosaic murals, and planters for more than 25 years. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about hydroflow permeable pavers designed to absorb rainwater and reduce runoff.
0: In today's Backyard, we asked you to give us the name of Hawaii's oldest Catholic cathedral. It was completed on August 15, 1843, and paid for by the Congregation of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary in Paris. It housed the first clock tower in the territory, and the pipe organ installed in 1847 was the first time that the instrument had been seen or heard in Hawaii. And when the Diocese of Honolulu was founded in 1941, this almost 100-year-old cathedral was selected as its mother church. The cathedral's white coral exterior was excavated from the same Kaka'ako Reef as Koeha'o Church and can be seen as you stroll through Fort Street Mall. Its Hawaiian name is Malia Oka Maluhale Pule Nui, but you probably know it better as the Cathedral Basilica of Our Lady of Peace, the answer to today's backyard quiz. The nearly 180-year-old building is one of downtown Honolulu's oldest structures and is the oldest cathedral in continuous use in the country. And congrats to Mindy from Hilo. You are our winner today. That's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance executive MBA in travel industry management. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Marsh Cafe, we catch up with a couple of the latest Mana Up companies to learn how they scale their local brand to the rest of the world. We'll also learn about the Mana up Accelerator and what Cohort 7 will do as they enter in the post-pandemic world. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
0: day that someone gets nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And when that happens, and that person happens to be your child, well, you can just imagine as a parent how your heart would swell with pride. The parent in this case is HBR classical music host Louise Kili'iloma King Lanzalotti, and it is her daughter, Lilihua who got the good news this month. Lelehua is a violinist and composer who started playing at eight years old. She's a Punahou alum and studied music at Oberlin Conservatory in Ohio before pursuing advanced degrees overseas. She recently returned home to work on the Hawaii Triennial Arts Festival and is currently teaching in the uh, University of Hawaii um, Manoa Music Department. Lelehua recently appeared as a guest on her mother's show on HPR2, Classical Pacific, to talk about the Pulitzer nomination and her music, we thought we would share a portion of the conversation between the two of them as part of our morning. It's a treat.
5: You're listening to a program about American composers and performers on Classical Pacific. If you're just joining us, aloha.
8: Truly a surprise. And it's a really big honor just to be a finalist um, because that recognition is um, is a really big deal in in my field and and as a as a composer it was exciting this year because the winner was raven chacon who's also an indigenous composer who's been an incredible mentor for a lot of indigenous composers over the years and is also an experimental musician the other finalist was andy akiho and yeah it was a really cool group of people to be to be honored with I think we were all excited for each other there was a certain camaraderie in that that I think was really special and really excited for each other and that honor Um, and so yeah it was a I'm still just shocked that they even listened to my piece (laughs) Uh, so I wanted to ask
5: you a little bit about the work what is the work about I know that it's based in Hawaii in its its own way
8: Uh, The work is called With Eyes the Color of Time, and it is based on—the titles are based on different uh, pieces that were at the Contemporary Museum, um, the Spaulding House, when it first opened in 1988 Um, 87. 88. The year novel was born. Right. You were a
5: small child, and you had free reign of the Contemporary Museum, and you Mm -hmm. took it all, you soaked it all in, and now it's coming out in this way.
8: It's a very personal piece. I have a hard time talking about it. The program notes for it are very vague. The titles are based on the pieces in the museum. Um, But I I wrote it when uh, I was finishing writing it in December 2019, um, when the museum closed its doors permanently. Um, and I think for people that aren't in Hawaii, um, kind of don't don't realize that that... I know people from Hawaii know the Contemporary Museum and that it closed. Um, but um, I think, you know, there was a really special collection that Jay had put together... And a, a really interesting group of artists, including um, Toshiko Takaezu, whose work I'm researching for another project as well. Um, and just a really interesting array of local artists and international artists, um, one of which in particular, um, uh, the, the Hockney um, was I think a set built that went on tour around the world and then ended up as an installation piece um, and the set was originally built for uh, the, the, the piece was built in this house at the Contemporary Museum um, and the title of the piece comes from the opera that that, that piece was based on L'Enfant et la le Sortilège I should let you say that title because you actually speak French um. <laughs> You're doing great um you know it's it's kind of a heavy it's a heavy piece um for something that I played around in so much um with eyes the color of time is a phrase that the the princess sings in her aria and there's there's one movement that's particularly that way but the the piece is kind of seen as a children's opera but the there's a lot in it i think um having spent so much time running around and playing in there and listening to it over and over again. I mean, the the story is that there's this boy who is misbehaving and his mother locks him in his room. And so he tears out pages of the storybook and he rips the wallpaper and he pulls the cat's tail and he does all these things. Um, and then he falls asleep on the chair and he wakes up and, and all of the things that he kind of took his anger out on um, are coming to life and... There's a lot of depth in it. You know, there's the, the people that are ripped. The, the wallpaper is of these people who, um, that are, it's kind of, there are themes of refugees. They're displaced. They've been ripped off the wall. They've been ripped out of their homeland and they don't have any place to go. And they're, they're asking him why he did this. You know, it's
5: really important to, to just see how much this can help you to understand your own uh self as a composer you haven't really been a composer for that long when you were in grad school you took a lot of composition courses Mm -hmm. and when I would visit you were hanging out with the composers all the time Mm -hmm. that's what you did and then you wrote your thesis your doctoral thesis on a composer named Andrew Norman who sent who also was a finalist for another in another year for the Pulitzer he he wasn't at the time yeah you you Really appreciated its work and that 's what you did
8: I mean that that was a really special time to be at at Yale um, Caroline Shaw who was the youngest person ever when the Pulitzer was uh, the, um, was there as a violinist she also wasn 't there as a composer um, yet uh, Andrew was there who was a, a finalist in 2012 i 'll come back to that um, and again and again he 's been twice. Um, but also, you know, uh, several of my other colleagues at Yale were were finalists in the last few years. It was a really, really special time to be there, and and the prize has no affiliation to to that place. It was just a really uh, special group of people. I feel, and I think
5: a really great teacher. That yes. Because when I would hear concerts, everybody was very different. Mm-hmm. The, the people weren't just doing a set, like, you know, this is how you play music in yeah. my style, 12-tone or something. Just everybody was in all different directions. Yeah.
8: I mean, Martin Bresnik, who has been the kind of through-thread for a lot of people who have come through there, um, who's been a, a really wonderful wonderful mentor for me um, after my my teacher uh, my viola teacher at Yale, who was my primary advisor, um, passed away right after I left. Um, and so um, Martin Bresnick has, has really been a, a great mentor for me, kind of having known him during that time, but afterwards also as I was applying for jobs and just kind of bouncing ideas off of him. And um, he mentored all of the Bang on a Can composers, um, including Julia Wolf, who was also a Pulitzer winner. Um and uh yeah, just a just a really special time. Um and Andrew who you mentioned Andrew Norman. Um I mean kind of my association with the Pulitzer in music was um just kind of knowing Andrew's music, so uh what uh the first time I ever was kind of aware of the Pulitzer as a music prize um, was when um, I had heard Andrew's String Trio um, when I was living in Berlin. And when I came back to the States to do my doctorate, I knew that that's what I wanted to write about. Um, and so I went to my advisor, and I said, hey, Nils, Nils Vigeland was my advisor at the time, um, before he retired, and, and Raiko Fuching, who's also a composer. All of my advisors were composers. <laughs> um and, uh, and so I t- said to Nils, hey, I really want to write about this piece. It's incredible. I, you know It has all this stuff to do with architecture and light, and it's, you know, it'll be a really interesting thing to write about and really dig in. And, and he's, he was kind of like, who's Andrew Norman? You know, what is this thing? But he was very open-minded, but you know, Andrew's only a few years older than me, so at the time it was still kind of, you know, who is this guy? Why would you write? your dissertation about him so he said okay well you know bring the score in bring a a, you know bring in a recording if you have one and put it in my box and I'll think about it so in that morning the next morning I came in on Monday morning I put the score in his box I printed out the score and I gave him a I think I had a bootleg recording from the premiere or something Um, and then of course that day the Pulitzer was announced Totally by coincidence. And, of course, nobody knows, so I didn't know. And not just Andrew, but the Companion Guide to Rome, the piece I wanted to write about, was a finalist in 2012. Um, and so the next day when I went in to class, my advisor said, well, I guess I have to let you write about that piece now. <laughs> um, but for me, I think also it, just, it was... Um, Part of why I feel like this is a big honor is because I really, really admire Andrew Norman and that piece that I've spent a lot of time with. Um, And so this kind of also felt special um, and obviously has a lot of influence from him in my writing um, to be honored 10 years later as someone who was as as a composer. Well, I know
5: that the entire Hawaii community is very excited for you. And, you know, relatives and friends from all over the world... And, you know, I, I hope that you will, will just take this in all the way. I know you're just getting used to it still. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, wonderful, wonderful to have you with me for this interview, Lelehua.
0: That was H.P.R.'s Louise Loma King Lanzalotti talking with her daughter, Lilihua Lanzalotti, about her recent Pulitzer Prize nomination. Lilihua will lead a group of local musicians in a performance of a new piece titled Skygate. Uh, it will be tomorrow around noon on the Honolulu Civic Center grounds. If you're there, stop by. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we plan to talk to Hilton Rachel about spiking COVID cases, and we hear from beloved musician John Cruz as he marks the 25th anniversary of his seminal album, Acoustic Soul. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.